From Resilient Partners, this is the Resilient Insights Podcast. Every episode offers in-depth insights on the key debates and conversations shaping Washington and the world. From policy to leadership to the lighter side of life, we're your source for thoughtful discussions. So get ready to be informed, inspired, and engaged. Welcome to the Resilience Insights Podcast. I'm your guide on this journey, Joshua Baca, walking you through the intricate world of public policy, leadership, and the lighter side of life. I want to take a moment to thank everybody who has so far made the Resilient Insights Podcast such an enormous success uh, through downloads and social media. Uh, the word is really beginning to spread far, and I just want to thank everybody who's taken a moment to listen to what I have to say and what some of our guests have to say. We have some episodes that are planned that are going to be very insightful. We're going to continue to find the balance where we're going to dive deep into some policy issues. We're going to take a look at leadership. And of course, we're going to have some fun on the lighter side of life. If you haven't watched my most recent episode with Dan Orlando Jr., where we talk about the importance of music and resiliency, his inspiration, his soundtrack of resilience, even the songs in the Swifty universe that motivate him, I highly encourage you to watch it either on YouTube or wherever you get your podcast. So I want to dive deep a little bit in today and talk about a topic that has been really important in the context if you are a manufacturer and packaging. And the issue itself is an acronym, EPR. It stands for Extended Producer Responsibility. And it is a way and a goal for producers to come together and find ways to increase recycling rates and improve some standardization across the recycling infrastructure. And so today I want to talk a little bit about the issue that has been percolating in Colorado. Colorado enacted an EPR law back in 2022, and it is now in the process of implementation. My goal for this podcast is to really try to simplify it, break it down, and make sure that the topic itself is easy, digestible, and somewhat user-friendly to understand. Let's dive in a little bit deeper. What is an EPR law? And what are these weird acronyms that we always use when it comes to policymaking? Well, EPR, as I mentioned, stands for Extended Producer Responsibility. And really what it does is it shifts the onus from the consumer to the producers of material to fund the recycling infrastructure system so that more material is recycled instead of discarded into a landfill, uh, incinerated or something else. When you look at the goals of what the EPR system in Colorado is trying to do. I think one, it's trying to improve the collection of all materials. It's trying to standardize what is accepted from a minimum recycles list. And it really does a nice job of providing the scenarios that are needed to increase the recycling rates in the state. Let's start with the timeline. In June of 2022, Colorado enacted an EPR law and basically created the foundation to be one of the first in the nation to implement such a program. EPR systems are a form of collection and recycling for typically all materials. They have been widely used in other parts of the world, like Europe. And as I like to remind my, my listeners and followers, just because Europe does something doesn't mean we should do the same thing. But in all fairness to them, if, if done appropriately and designed in the proper context, it can serve as an effective tool to really achieve what many companies are trying to do today. And that's increased circularity of the packaging products that they manufacture. Many of, of consumer brand companies that you know, whether it's you know, General Mills or Procter and & Gamble and, and others, you know, the, the things you find in your grocery store and your retail store, they've made commitments to increase both 
the amount of recycled plastic that they use in their packaging, trying to divert waste and really work to increase recycling rates. They've made pledges through organizations like the Alan MacArthur Foundation and the U.S. Plastics Pack and plastics pack that exists all over the world. The timeline is tight. Some of those commitments are as soon as 2025 and others are just right around the corner in 2023. So in 2022, Colorado passed a law. In May of 2023, the law allows producers to formulate a nonprofit organization to oversee the implementation of this law. And the Circular Action Alliance was created as a means to oversee this law and serve as the producer responsibility organization, largely with overseeing implementation of this law. Credit to them, they really hit the ground running. They began almost immediately doing outreach to stakeholders, talking to local uh, recycling haulers, engaging with MRFs, talking to producers, material suppliers, all because they had a very critical deadline, which was at the end of January of this calendar year, January of 2023, a needs assessment was needed. This needs assessment would provide scenarios and recommendations and an analysis of the situation in Colorado, present that to the legislature for approval and feedback from stakeholders. A needs assessment basically covers the, you know, the various scenarios, the approach for standardization, analysis, and the cost that would be associated with it. It is needed as a means to create the foundation for this EPR law. And most importantly, it requires approval by the legislature and a process for stakeholders to engage and provide feedback. Because of the ambition of this law, comments to the needs assessment from stakeholders was due almost just a few weeks later on February 19th. And now we're in a phase where between now and uh, May, uh, May 21st to be exact, uh, they will hold a rulemaking hearing around the needs assessment. This gives the, the Colorado Department of Health and the Environment uh, time to review these comments. It also allows uh, the Circular Action Alliance to play their role and solicit and review all of this feedback. That's a quick timeline. So to summarize it, uh, June of 2022, the law is enacted. May of 2023, the Circular Action Alliance is formed to serve as the producer responsibility organization. January 31st of this calendar year, the needs assessment was produced, outlining various scenarios, costs, and goals of the program. February 19th of this calendar year, feedback from stakeholders to the rulemaking process was required. And May 21st of this calendar year, a hearing will be held on all of the various uh, components of feedback they received in this process. What the law does is it provides three scenarios on what would be needed to increase recycling rates in the state and the associated costs. The low scenario basically gives you a, a, a deep analysis of what it would mean to increase recycling rates by a lower rate, the medium by a moderate rate, and the high by a much more optimal rate. And so let's kind of dive into those three scenarios. In 2030, they estimate that in the low scenario, about approximately about 130 to $200 million will be needed to fund the recycling system. That will result in recycling rates that are somewhere in the neighborhood of 32 to 38%. Um, in the medium scenario, they articulate and outline costs that will approximately be somewhere in the neighborhood of 130 to 210 million, resulting in recycling rates of approximately 34 to 40%, both significant increases compared to what exists today. In the high scenario, they articulate costs somewhere in the neighborhood 
of ranging between 150 to 240 million dollars with the net result of recycling rates being somewhere in the neighborhood of 39 to 40 percent this is the 2030 scenario so as you could see um, in a max scenario of approximately 240 million dollars we're looking at a recycling rate that is still less than 50 percent um, as they continue down the path uh, they look at what those scenarios would be in 2035. And similarly, they off outline a low, medium, and high scenario. In the low scenario, they estimate those costs to be somewhere in the neighborhood of $160 million to $250 million, with recycling rates resulting in the neighborhood of somewhere between 47 and 53%. So really a significant improvement here, where we're finally getting over that 50% mark, which I think is critical for ensuring that these programs have some credibility. The second scenario outlines costs in the neighborhood of approximately $160 million to $260 million, resulting in recycling rates around somewhere in the neighborhood of 51 to 57%. And so again, a significant increase here, but as you see, the costs continue to go up. And uh, in the high scenario, they outline costs somewhere in the neighborhood of 180 to 290 million, uh, resulting in a much higher recycling rate, somewhere in the neighborhood of 54 to 60%. So if you look at this scenario on a very high end in approximately 10 years, it would cost you know, at least 290 million to get to that high rate of recycling rates, that optimal scenario where you're in that 60% range, which I think really shows that the program can be credible. And hopefully over time that these systems become somewhat self-sustaining, that those costs eventually go down. So good scenario planning here, costs associated with it, lots of work to get done. What also the program seeks to do, which is standardize and make the program more simpler for consumers. And what I mean by that today is, you know, I live in a suburban Virginia outside of Washington, D.C., and still to this day, almost every night for breakfast, lunch, or dinner, there is a huge debate in our household as to what goes in the blue bin and what doesn't go in the blue bin. And if you're lucky enough to have a blue bin, which some areas of the country still don't, um, there is a significant amount of confusion that makes it very difficult for consumers who are often wanting to do the right thing much more difficult than it needs to be. And so one of the things that the uh, needs assessment does is it proposes a minimum recyclables list and an additional recyclables list. And let's dive into what each one of those things means. On the minimum recyclables list, basically a true multi-material EPR system in the context that paper, glass, plastics, aluminum are all basically encouraged to be incentivized and collected in the EPR system. But as you know, there are multiple layers in the types of packaging that exist when you manufacture paper, glass, aluminum, plastic, even something that maybe we don't know in the future. And so what is widely accepted and proposed in the list is printed paper. So think about all those mailers you get in your mailbox, you know, the, the things that, you know, coupons and mail and flyers and a lot of that stuff that often ends up in your recycle bin, that's included in the EPR system. Any type of packaging that's made out of paper, your cardboard boxes that you may get from an online retailer like Amazon or Target or somewhere where you shop, your milk carton, think PET bottles or water bottles, milk jugs, those types of things will be included. A lot of your food packaging that's made out of plastic PET will also be included. Plastic thermoforms will be included in this. Aluminum containers, so think beer cans, soda cans, steel containers, you know, your can where maybe your green beans or your peas come in. And glass will also be included in this. So 
a pretty robust list of material that will be included in the EPR system. They also outline what they call additional recyclables list. And for this, it's basically an articulation of things that are encouraged to be recycled, but maybe not necessarily collected at curbside, things that you would drop off. So think about this as placing a burden on the consumer to do this. And let's get into what that list is. It's basically your films. So think of anything that is a plastic pouch or a plastic film that covers you know, your walnuts, your pecans, your granola bags, your food wraps, those types of things. Well, they won't be collected at curbside. They are encouraged for drop-off in the system. Paper cups as well. And, you know, your, your beverage containers, think like that green Sprite bottle, won't be collected at curbside, but that colored PET is encouraged for drop-off here. And so I want to take a moment to sort of outline what the scenario and the impacts of this is. You know, when you look at it on the surface, I think this is, they've done a really nice job of making sure that an EPR system is multi-material. And the reason I say that is there is often a huge debate as to whether or not we have a recycling problem or a plastics problem. And while I worked in that field for many years, I'm not here to give that type of analysis. But what I am here to say is that when you look at it from a cost perspective, an EPR system is not necessarily meant for one material to subsidize the collection, processing, and sortation of all materials. And I think that in this scenario, and in the implementation of this law, Colorado is setting a very good example that this won't be the case. So that, that's one of the good things. I think the challenging thing here is there is challenges with plastics recycling today. And when you look at the needs assessment, if you basically manufacture milk jugs or soda bottles or laundry detergent containers, you're probably going to be mostly fine in the system. If the scenarios that are outlined come to be, you'll probably see high rates of recycling for those types of plastic materials. But if you manufacture, you know, films and wraps and then small objects like your Keurig K-cups and your food containers you get from takeout and a variety of other types of plastic materials, those are encouraged for drop-off, not necessarily encouraged to be collected in the system, ultimately placing the burden on the consumer. Now, look, I'm a realist. All of these things come with costs associated with that. And it, right now, it's probably too costly to collect all those materials at the bin or at curbside, meaning that the processing facilities and a variety of the infrastructure on the back end maybe cannot take that today. I might argue that we should be working to incentivize that process as well too and, and improve it, but regardless, it would ultimately place the burden on the consumer, which I think if you and I are being honest with ourselves, probably means that a lot of this material isn't gonna get recycled. And so a scenario that I could see coming to be here is, we make great progress on, on increasing these plastics recycling rates. We make great progress on increasing the overall recycling rate. We're hitting some of those scenarios that are outlined in the needs assessment, but a lot of the material that is manufactured that isn't included in the system could, in theory, bring down the overall recycling rate, which I think is not the goal here. I think the goal here is to increase recycling. So one of the challenges that I see is if you are in plastic packaging, and you manufacture you know, non-bottle plastics, I could see that this particular needs assessment would present some challenges for you uh, in regards to implementation of the law. Let's get into a few of the other topics within this and some of the challenges that are outlined in the needs assessment. One of the biggest challenges that I see in analyzing the needs assessment is just the diversity and geography 
in Colorado. You have high population areas in Denver, Colorado. You have more you know, touristy areas that are in the slopes and the mountains where people ski. And then you really get out to the outskirts and the northern parts of the state and it become much, much more rural. And so one of the challenges that is outlined in the need assessment is really the costs and the challenges to getting collection, sortation, pickup, you know, the basic recycling services in some of those rural and more remote areas. And so when you look at the costs and the challenges that could be associated with this, you could also see a scenario here where maybe the Denver suburbs and Denver itself do very well in a system, but the costs are so astronomical uh, in those more rural and remote areas. And so perhaps as the system plays out, those metropolitan areas where there are much more um, heavy, you know, concentrations of population might be subsidizing the collection and sortation in those outer markets here. It's something to keep in mind. The needs assessment talks through about the difficulties in correct collecting in some of these areas, whether it's a terrain or the mountains or truck limits uh, based upon this. So this is something that needs to be monitored and something that is going to be difficult um, in regards to implementing this law. Now, not all doom and gloom, positive side here. I look at this as the what often is referred to as the last mile in delivering packages, whether it's from Amazon or the Postal Service or UPS or whatever that is. And this really is the last mile problem for the collection, sortation, and processing of materials in a place like Colorado. And so it might on paper be relatively easy to do this in a place like Denver or Colorado Springs or Boulder, Colorado. It's probably going to be much more difficult as you get into more rural areas. But if you're able to do this correctly and efficiently, you are establishing a model for the rest of the country um, on how to go about it and how to go about it in a much more effective way. So let's go ahead and summarize this and why it matters. I think one of the first things that we have to keep in mind from the needs assessment is that the current recycling rate for packaging in the state of Colorado is somewhere in the neighborhood of 22 to 28%. So it's relatively low and clearly as the needs assessment shows could be much higher. There are some other good things to take away from this. 500,000 households in Colorado will receive curbside recycling and about 600 tons of recyclables will be produced through the system. That's really good in the context that waste will be diverted from landfills and the environment and really put into the circular system. It is multi-material for the most part, as I mentioned, with some asterisks and some caveats, so that's good. And you could see a scenario here where there's an encouragement for end markets of material like glass, which also is a good thing. I think to sum it up in, in short, just a reminder of what an EPR system is, it's where producers of materials just pay into the system to make sure that the recycling system is sustained, maintained, and over a period of time. And what an EPR system does is really focuses on collection, sortation, and processing of all materials. So I think as you continue to look at this implementation of this law, I would encourage listeners and viewers, well, a somewhat wonky and maybe in the weeds topic, it, it is happening in all arenas of government. It's happening at the federal level. I believe in, in early March, the Senate uh, Environment and Public Works Committee is going to be hosting a hearing on this topic. Um, there is a global debate on plastic pollution where EPR um, has been a topic of that. Other states are currently looking at these types of laws. California has enacted a packaging regulation law with some EPR components. Maryland uh, enacted a law that requires a needs assessment to see what a future EPR system could look like. Maine has uh, implemented a EPR law that is currently you know, making its way through the implementation process. And Oregon as well has, has done something similar to Maine. But 
What I find most intriguing about Colorado, and I think why this matters, is Colorado has the opportunity to set the example on how a good EPR system should be enacted. And if enacted correctly, manufacturers in this country will have a significant advantage when it comes to circularity. In fact, I've always long believed that the U.S. in this broad debate over circularity and sustainability should be the hub for the world. It should be the shining star on a hill on how we do these things a little bit better. We have great people. We generally have good infrastructure. We have resources. I think that there is an opportunity here to make Colorado the shining star on the hill. There are always going to be challenges in such a system. Much more work needs to be done, and who knows what will come from uh, the, re- the rulemaking process and action from the legislature and stakeholders. And I'm not really analyzing on that component just yet, but I think I'm analyzing on where they are today. They've done a really good job of formulating a PRO quickly. They've done a really good job, whether all of the details are, are right or in need of improvement, The needs assessment is a significant step. And now that process is beginning. And so hopefully this process yields something better. So with that, I want to thank everybody again who has taken time to listen to the Resilience Insights podcast. It really means a lot to me that you guys care or want to listen to what I have to say. We've got some really cool stuff in the works. I've got a very special guest coming on next week. Her name is Jennifer Betts from Recycled Media. She is the foremost expert in metals recycling. And we're going to talk about a really wonky topic, this proposed merger between Nippon Steel and U.S. Steel that's currently being debated here in Washington. We're looking forward to sharing that episode with you. We have a fantastic conversation on some of the insights and the details of this that maybe don't matter to you right now because you're not in steel, but really matter for the future of manufacturing and competition against the world. Always a plug. If um, you want to receive the Resilience Insights newsletter that comes out once a month, Go to my website, www.resilientpartners.us. Sign up there. As I mentioned, giving a deep dive on this issue between Nippon Steel and U.S. Steel with some subsequent podcasts to support that content. So once again, thank you. Give me a follow on social media. You can find me on LinkedIn, at Joshua Baca, on X or Twitter, whatever you refer to call it, at Joshua Baca. You can find me on TikTok, at Beltway Baca. And on Instagram, you can find us at Resilient Partners. So give us a look, give us a follow, share this message with everybody. And until next time, thank you for joining and listening to the Resilient Insights podcast. I'm lost, and I just can't see-